I was reading an article today talking about how one of the things that Christianity proclaims, which in some ways is out of sync with postmodern world that we live in, is that the life that we live and the world we inhabit is narratable. In other words, things connect together. There is a divine storyteller and there is a story that links things together. And, and the writer was pointing out how one of the challenges about talking of the gospel in our day and age is people tend to think that everything is somewhat random and not disconnected. Uh, actually, there was a guy, Charles Malik, who was the Secretary Gen General of the UN for a while in the 70s, who wrote a book called The Christian Critique of the University, where he talked about how we no longer have the uni in university, that the idea of university is a Christian concept, that there is a, a unified you know, connection between all things because God has made all things, and he stamped everything he made with meaning. But in a lot of ways, I was talking to somebody even earlier tonight about you know, one of their classes and how you tend to hear different disciplines, whether it's psychology or sociology or economics. Each of them seems to, to give the impression that they believe they can explain all of life in terms of their, um, their area by themselves. Now, why do I, I say that? Because I was thinking about the various songs that we're singing. And, and one of the things that we're trying to do in worship is to regain and to push back against that, I guess, worldview and, and force of thought in our culture that says things just kind of happen and they're just kind of random. That we, we believe the gospel is the culmination of a beautiful story. And when we gather to worship, we remember that story. We rehearse that story. We tell it and we sing it. And when we come to a passage that we're going to talk about tonight, Galatians chapter 3, it comes in the midst of a bigger story. As a matter of fact, even the passage we're going to look at makes allusions to that. It's a story that God has been telling for a long time. But I don't know if you realize how remarkable that is. We don't just talk about the gospel as like some philosophical proposition that you give assent to. The gospel is a story that captures us. And that's why I love that last hymn, Hast Thou Seen Him, Known Him, Heard Him, right? Tis the look that melted Peter, right? Tis the look that melt, you know, the face that wept with Mary. Like those are all talking about stories. Jesus came and lived as a real man and he wept and he rejoiced. He looked at Peter, their eyes met after he had betrayed Jesus, right? All those things are tied together and connect together because we have a God who has been telling a beautiful story for a long time. And we find ourselves in the midst of the story. So let's look at Galatians chapter 3. And we'll pick up the story as it was unfolding 2,000 years ago. A story that we're still in the middle of. The Apostle Paul says this in Galatians chapter 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning 
By means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's quoting from a passage in Genesis. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that means the non-Jewish people, and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. And then again, quote from Genesis, all nations will be blessed through you. And Paul concludes, so those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. <coughs> Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. Again, we find Paul is angry. And, and, and we're glad, Lord, that that anger helps us, again, get into what really matters most. We begin to understand what really matters most. Lord, we don't want to be foolish. We don't want to be bewitched. We pray that you would open our hearts and our eyes and our minds, that we could understand what you're doing in the midst of this gospel story in Galatia and even today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, obviously we're picking up the story in the middle. There is some, somewhat an artificial thing that happens when you spend a semester going through one letter of the New Testament. Certainly, when Paul sent this letter to the Galatians, he didn't expect them to read like nine verses and then wait till the next week and then read the next few verses, right? Um, and, and I would encourage you, actually, it's worth reading as we're going through this, it's worth reading the whole letter to the Galatians at one sitting. If you did that every week, it would be good for you. It would be good for your souls. And then you would see the big context uh, into which this passage tonight fits. But here's what's been going on. Paul is has, has now doing, uh, bringing into this contrast. Um, again, it's connected to what some false teachers had been telling these Galatian Christians in contrast to what Paul had taught them when he first brought the gospel to them. And it seems to center here, he's talking about spiritual power. He's saying, okay, you received the Spirit, and God has been working miracles among you. Like, you've seen God's power at work. So let me ask you, how did God's power come to work in your midst? And the answer he expects them to say is, by the Spirit, and by believing the good news, the gospel message. And so he says, that's how spiritual power came into your midst. Doesn't it make sense then that spiritual power would continue to be at work in your midst through faith and through belief in the gospel? And he says what's happened is you've been bewitched because now you think that even though spiritual power initially came to you through the gospel, not just being some propositions that you give assent to, but he, he describes it as, look, as Christ clearly portrayed as crucified before your very eyes, there was something that happened. When I told you about the gospel, it didn't just, it didn't just sort of come as a set of propositions that you say, yeah, okay, I agree with that. No, there was a, some dynamic that went beyond mere transfer of information. You saw Christ portrayed 
clearly before your very eyes. And power came into your life. So why do you think now that the way to get more power or to keep this kind of power, now you need to shift the whole basis of how you relate to God, and instead of trusting in the work of Christ, you now feel like you need to trust in your own work, what Paul calls the works of the law. So he's saying if you move away from faith in the promises of God as the basis for how you relate to God, you have just basically done a 180 about the gospel. Do you see that? The message is key, in other words, to spiritual power. The message. Why do I say that? Because he starts out here saying, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. You experience the power of the gospel because the gospel was powerful to you. A gospel that had been proclaimed. This is such a basic thing for Christianity that Paul says, if you've forgotten this, it's like you've been bewitched. It's like some demon has taken over you. For you to have forgotten this basic thing, that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, which is the way he puts it in Romans chapter 10, uh, Paul says this sort of thing all over the place. This is such a basic thing. The reason we gather and we hear from God's word is because we believe the preached word has power, that God's word goes forth and it does not return in vain, that his spirit who inspired the scripture and writing continues to work through the word to change hearts, to change us. And Paul says, if you've fallen away from that or forgotten that or rejected that, you've rejected such a fundamental thing that you must have been bewitched. But again, it's not just enough to know the message. Paul says it has to be sensed and experienced in a powerful way. And I love that. So that leads to this next question, which is really what we're going to spend the, the bulk of our time on tonight. How how and where do you get this message? If it's important for you to have spiritual power, and spiritual power comes by this message, where do you get the message? And that gets us to the issue of the Bible and what the Bible's all about. And this is a fascinating place. Now, we're going to talk more about this whole Abraham believing God and the difference between uh, law and gospel. That's next week. Okay, But tonight we're really going to focus on verses 7 and particularly verse 8. In verse 8 it says this, The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham, quote, and this is from uh, Genesis chapter 12, All nations will be blessed through you. That's a pretty remarkable statement for a couple reasons. Number one, if you go back to Genesis chapter 12 and look at it, the author of those words, according to Genesis, is not the Bible. It's God. God spoke 
to Abraham and said these words. Moses wrote them down in the book of Genesis. But when Paul talks about that story, he doesn't say God foresaw that he would justify the Gentiles. And so he announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. Paul says scripture said it. So that's one interesting thing. How can Paul say scripture says and even personify scripture when actually in Genesis, the context says that God said it. So that's the first thing we're going to look at. The second is, I thought the gospel started on the day of Pentecost and started with Jesus dying at the cross. Isn't it strange that Genesis chapter 12 is described as preaching the gospel, announcing the gospel. And so here's the, the two things I want to I bring out of this uh, passage tonight. The first is, we need the Bible to get the gospel. If you are like been here and you're like, I keep hearing about the gospel, I keep hearing about the gospel, I, I want to really get the gospel. I want it to be power in my life. Well, here's the first point tonight. You need the Bible to get the gospel because it's in the scripture that God speaks an authoritative, trustworthy word. Second, if you want to get the scripture, you need to understand the gospel. Because the gospel is the message of the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. So the first, to get the gospel, you need the Bible. And the second point, to get the Bible, to really understand what it's about, you need to get the gospel. Right? You ready for that? So, what do we learn here about Paul's view of scripture? Well, the first thing, again, is this verse 8, the way... Paul here equates God says with Scripture says. In other words, Paul interchanges, not just here, but numerous places in the Bible. Do you see the New Testament authors doing this very thing? Places where um, in, in the uh, Old Testament, things that were spoken of by God, when they're referred to in the New Testament, it will say Scripture says this. And that's particularly interesting because when God said this in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, the scripture, strictly speaking, didn't exist yet. Abraham didn't write it down. Moses wrote it down years later. So how even more unusual to say scripture says when when you go back and look at it, God is the one who said it. <coughs> now, B.B. Warfield, you may not know his name, but isn't that a great name for a theologian, B.B. Warfield? All great theologians, you know, they're just known by their first two initials, you know. His name was Benjamin Breckenridge, and that's a great name, too. Um, but he, uh, he wrote an amazing article. He was a professor at Princeton Seminary, late 1800s into the early 1900s. And he wrote a very uh, important, very famous essay, It Says, God Says, Scripture Says, demonstrating how those three terms are used interchangeably in the New Testament, in other words, there are numerous New Testament passages where the scriptures are spoken, as, uh, spoken of as if they were God. And then there are other passages where God is spoken of as if he were the scriptures. This is the way that he says it. He says a passage like this one. He actually uses Galatians 3.8 as one of his examples. He says, these acts could be attributed to scripture. In other words, scripture foresaw that God would justify the, the um the Gentiles, 
only as a result of such a habitual identification in the mind of the writer of the text of Scripture with God speaking that it just became natural to use the term Scripture says when what was really intended was God as recorded in Scripture says. But for the New Testament writers, for the early Christians, God says equaled Scripture says. There was such a complete identification in their mind that they used the phrases interchangeably. Then there's a whole other group of passages where, um, you know, it says that God says, but when you go back and look at it, it's David who wrote it in the Psalms, strictly speaking. But yet the New Testament says, God says this. And, and he says this about this second group of passages. When you look at them, passages like Matthew 19, um, I, I, let me just read one of these so you get the idea of what I'm talking about. Um, haven't you read, Jesus says in Matthew 19, that at the beginning, the creator, quote, made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. and The two will become one flesh. That's a quote from Genesis. But it's clear that that's not the words that God spoke. Those are the words Moses wrote in Genesis. And yet Jesus in 19, Matthew 19 says the creator said this. Again, equating what the Creator says with what the Scripture says. Another example is in Hebrews 3.7, where the writer of Hebrews says this, So as the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes Psalm 95, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. So Psalm 95 is quoted, but the writer of Hebrews says, The Holy Spirit says. But you look at Psalm 95, it doesn't say, The Holy Spirit says this. Do you see what I'm saying? So these things are equated in the mind and, and the uh, practice of the New Testament. So here's kind of the conclusion here, of, and I have this underlined in your outline if you want to follow this. He said, these things could only be attributed to God only through habit such habitual identification in the minds of the writers of the text of Scripture with the utterances of God that it had become more natural to use the term God says when what was really intended was Scripture, the Word of God says. These two sets of passages that I've just described together then show an absolute identification in the minds of these writers of Scripture with the speaking God. So I hope that you will understand that the idea that Scripture was God's word and that God was speaking through Scripture is not something that developed in the first several centuries as the church became institutionalized and the hierarchy wanted to control people, you get all these kinds of ideas thinking that sort of scripture kind of evolved into an authoritative Bible that the church used to oppress people. Nothing could be further from the truth. The New Testament itself gives ample evidence that God says and scripture says work absolutely uh, equated in the minds of the scripture writers. Furthermore, furthermore, this is the, the, the way Jesus thinks about the scriptures as well. Right? Now, let, let me, I'm going to say that in a second. Let me say one more two implications about Paul's view, and then I'll, I'll say just something briefly about how Jesus does the same thing. But you, what, why does this matter? Why am I spending time on this? Um, well, I want you to understand that Paul is saying more than just this or that book is inspired. When he's referring to Genesis 12, and he was referring to the scriptures that the, that the Jews 
understood to be God's word, what he's saying is anything that scripture says, God says. This is what, you know, theologians call the doctrine of plenary inspiration. That means that Christianity believes that the words themselves are inspired. That's what we mean by verbal plenary, plenary every word, inspired, God breathed. So we believe in RUF, we proclaim this. This is the historic view of Christians of all stripes, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant. It's not the view of everybody that calls himself a Christian now, but this is the classic historic Christian view that every word, not just the ideas, every word is God-breathed. What scripture says, God says. Now, what's interesting is sometimes the most powerful truths are the ones that are just assumed not necessarily argued for. See, what's interesting here is that the, the, this passage in uh, verse 8 here, Paul just sort of matter-of-factly speaks this way. Do you understand? Like I'm basically, you might say, well, you're just sort of drawing a point out of this passage that doesn't seem to be his main point. In some ways, that's true. Because actually, sometimes some of the most important truths are gotten at by seeing what's just matter-of-factly assumed by the biblical writers. In other words, you get insight into the worldview and the way they understood reality. And it's worth taking a moment to look at that. And that's what we're doing tonight. I'll give you another great example. You, you don't have to turn to it, but you might write it down and look at it later. It's Acts 13, 48. This is a verse that always freaks people out. Um, it, it talks about Paul preaching to some Gentiles. And then there's this, just this, again, matter-of-fact little phrase that Luke writes to explain what happens. Some of the people get converted. They respond to the gospel preaching by putting their faith in Christ. And this is the way Luke writes it. He says, and as many as were appointed for eternal life believed. Now, you know, you may know that that's quite a controversial statement in our day and age. A lot of people say, well, the reason you get appointed is because you believe. But what Luke says is actually the appointing is the cause of believing. Okay? Now, among Protestants, there's big debates about that. Predestination, free will. But it's interesting. Luke doesn't argue for it. It's just matter of fact. Look, if somebody believes, it's because they were appointed for eternal life. And I've had more people sort of change their views about God's grace because of that verse. And it's particularly powerful because it's just matter of fact. Luke is not arguing for it, but you get insight there to the way he thinks reality works. The way reality works is what God intends is what happens. What God intends is what happens. The way Paul understands reality to work is if God has said it, Scripture says it. And if Scripture says it, it's God speaking. Therefore, it can be relied on. Do you see? So he's coming here. He's basically saying there's an argument between me and between these false teachers. I say that power comes through faith, believing the gospel. These false teachers say it comes through working. But the scripture is on my side. And if the scripture says it, God says it. End of argument. End of argument. It's been said that Jesus never quoted scripture to begin an argument. 
And that's true. Every time he quotes scripture, he quotes it to end the argument. And Paul does the same thing here. If scripture says it, God says it, argument over. Now, I, I could take a minute or two and talk about how this is Jesus' own view of the Bible as well. You know, ultimately, the reason Christians believe that the Bible is God's verbal, plenary inspiration, in other words, the words themselves and every word is inspired as God's breathed, is because that's Jesus' view. You know, there's this fascinating passage in John 10, verse 34, where Paul is, or Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees, and he says, Is it not written in your law, quote, I have said you are gods? And he's quoting Psalm 82, and he makes a whole point based on the S in the word gods. So here, here's the point. Uh, Roger Nicole, who was uh, one of um, Tim Keller's professors when uh, Tim was in seminary, says it this way. Jesus Christ bases his deity, that's what he's arguing for in John um, chapter 10 here, says Jesus Christ bases his deity on a single word, in a secondary clause, in an unimportant psalm, by an obscure figure, it wasn't written by David, Psalm 82, in the seemingly least authoritative part of the scripture, which is the Psalms. Does that give you some insight into the way Jesus regarded the scripture? Let me say that again. Jesus Christ bases his deity in this argument on a single word in a secondary clause in an unimportant psalm by an obscure finger in the seemingly least important authoritative part of the scripture, which is the Psalms. See, a lot of people love the Psalms when they don't like Paul's letters. They like the Psalms because they're sort of like emotional, flowery, imagery driven, and they don't sort of say this is true and this is not true. They sort of seem more open to your own interpretation. Jesus doesn't regard it that way. He, he goes to that place, a very, just a verse that who would have ever thought that this could be used to prove much of anything? But Jesus considers every single word worth listening to and worthy of building an argument upon. And he lives this principle out as well. There's a lot of places to see this, but I think one of the most interesting ones, the very end of his life, he's carrying the cross and he sees women weeping. Now, Jesus was having a very difficult time, right? The Bible says that, as a matter of fact, he's so, he was so crushed by the weight of the cross that eventually they had to get some poor guy out of the crowd and make him carry the cross for him, right? You remember that part of the story? And, and what enables Jesus to keep going? See, it's not just that Jesus quotes Scripture to other people. He quotes Scripture to himself. It's the whole framework for how he understands what he's experiencing, and what he needs to do. So in, in Luke chapter 23, verses 30, he quotes Hosea to these weeping women. They're these weeping women. He turns to them and he says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then, and here he quotes Hosea, they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us, quoting Hosea 10.8. So at this moment of intense crisis for Jesus, he looks at these women and he quotes scripture because for him, scripture gives him a framework to understand what's going on, why the innocent son of God is being forced to carry a cross upon which he will be crucified. 
He quotes scripture to keep himself going and to make himself do the right things. It determined what he thought. It determined what he did. Now, a couple, couple thoughts about this. Some might say, well, of course Jesus believed the scripture. Everybody back in his day did. He was a man of his time, but now we're sophisticated. Now we have science and psychology and sociology. We understand all these things um, in a more sophisticated way. We're not naive, gullible people like Jews in the first century. Here's all I would say, and Tim Keller, I, I put a quote of this, but it's basically, here's the response I would make to that. It's, you can't have Jesus and trample on the principle that he based his whole life upon. If you want Jesus, if you want the beauty of his life and his death, does it make any sense to trample upon and to reject the thing that he himself built his life upon. So you need to wrestle with that. A.W. Tozer, a great Christian writer of the 20th century, said, you cannot pick and choose among revealed truths. And I would say, if you want Jesus, but you don't want what Jesus believed was most important to him, then I don't know if you really want the real Jesus. You want a Jesus of your own imagination. And that goes into the second idea. So, you know, a lot of people these days don't like the idea of verbal plenary inspiration. They think that it is too restrictive. Like, how can you have any kind of conversation or relationship with God if he's always right? Can you imagine being married to somebody who is always right? You know how annoying that would be? But uh, and there's a classic expression. This I, I wrote this quote down here. I don't have time now, but it's a great uh, article, Anne Monroe writing in Mother Jones magazine about, you know, seven or eight years ago, basically saying, you know, there's got to be give and take. Like, you you can't have a real relationship if you have a sort of an always right Bible. But here's what I would say. If the Bible can't tell you no, because every time it tells you something you don't like, you just throw that part out, then I would say you're not really having a conversation with God. You're having a conversation with yourself. You're just using the Bible to do it. And that goes for people that are more progressive or liberal and people that are more conservative. We all are tempted to pick and choose among revealed truths. And we think we're believing the Bible when a lot of times we're basically believing what we already agree, what we already believe, and we're using the Bible to just sort of have a sort of a catch-22 kind of conversation with ourselves. To take Jesus, you need to have the scriptures, and the scriptures All of the scriptures, every word of the scriptures is vital if you would get the gospel, right? Now, see, if the Bible isn't all true, if the Bible isn't all true, if some of the parts are not inspired, some of the parts are not trustworthy, it throws everything into confusion. I don't think I'm being alarmist when I say that. You might think, oh, that just seems extreme. It's not extreme. How will you decide out of all the strange, crazy stuff that Jesus says and does, which things you'll accept and which you won't. Right? How can you really know Jesus if you throw out everything that's upsetting? I mean, um, Tim Keller said one time, I've always loved this, he said, I pray for you that you will never, that you will marry somebody who will disagree with you. Because if you marry somebody who always agrees with you, you'll never know who they really are. And let me tell you, if Jesus always agrees with you, you don't have much of a relationship. 
You really don't. You cannot throw out the outrageous things or you lose the real Jesus. If scripture can't tell you no, how will you ever change? There's a, a great verse in, in, uh, in one of John's letters where he says, when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. See, it's, it's one thing to say, well, I don't like the idea of hell. I'm just going to throw that out of the Bible. Well, there's implications to that. But what about when your heart says that you're ugly in God's sight? Can the Bible trump that? Can the Bible tell you no? It's a very practical problem. I don't know if you see the full implications. I think a lot of people are tempted to give up the idea of verbal plenary inspiration to help deal with some of the intellectual challenges they face in college. But I want you to understand what you're giving up. And that's, you know, we can talk about that more over a cup of coffee. Let me, uh, let me jump on to the, to the last point here. So we need, we need the Bible to get the gospel. Because the gospel is part of a story that's proclaimed a promise that we put our faith in. And I'm going to talk more about that promise. But let me just get to the next thing here. Final thing. We need the gospel to get the Bible. Because the scripture preaches the gospel everywhere. Now what's interesting here is, is when it says that this, the, the scripture um, announced the gospel. That's saying that the scripture preached the gospel. But look at what it actually says. All nations will be blessed through you. And you're like, wait, that doesn't say anything about Jesus and him dying on a cross. Like, I thought the gospel had to include all of those elements. Well, here's, here's what we're going to talk about a little more next week. The gospel is basically the promise of God. And sometimes it's spelled out in more detail. But this is why we believe people in the Old Testament could be saved by their faith in God and his promise, even if they don't understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. They put their hope in God and his provision and his grace and his mercy. The gospel is a promise. The gospel is a promise. And promises are what your faith feeds on. This is why we love to sing hymns that talk about who God is and what he's done. Because your faith feeds on the promises of God. And these promises are everywhere. You know, one of the great tragedies is, you know, there's, there's a lot of kind of bad theology there out, out in the world, even that Left Behind conference that's coming up. You know, there are views of the end times that affect the way you read the Bible in really huge ways. So many, so many people have grown up in systems where they think, for instance, there's a big difference between Israel and the church, and one day there'll be kind of like two separate peoples of God, and all these promises in the Old Testament aren't for the church, they're for Israel. That's the theology behind those crazy left-behind books. And it's not just that they're screwed up about what's coming, they're screwed up about what's already happened. And the practical result is most people think the only part of the scripture that really matters for them are the Gospels, maybe some of the New Testament letters, and the Psalms. Oh, and maybe the Proverbs, you know, if you read them like little moral maxims to organize your life around. And so, honestly, most people that have been Christians for a long time, if you take their Bible, you hold it up and look at it, you can tell where they've spent the most time. And you can tell, like, the outside, all the Old Testament things are just kind of, they're, they're not dirty. They're, you know, the, nobody uses those passages in the Bible. And that's tragic because some of the most beautiful promises are there all throughout the Old Testament, 
The gospel is the key to understanding the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It's huge. So often we look at the Bible, particularly the Old Testament and particularly the Old Testament stories, in a moralistic way. In other words, we think of them as like Christian Aesop's fables. We think, you know, the, the story of David and, and Goliath is a story about how if you put your faith in God, you'll be able to overcome giants in your own life, right? And, and we basically sort of get out from that story, you should, you should be courageous. But when you do that, you, you really have twisted the Bible. You've, you've turned it upside down. As Tim Keller said one time, there are basically two ways to read the Bible. Is it about you and what you need to do? Or is it about God and what he's done and what he's promised to do? Now, if you've been in like Linnea's freshman small group, girl small group, you guys have been reading, right? The Jesus Storybook Bible. If you've never thought about how to read the Old Testament in a way that you see Christ and the promise of the gospel in all the Old Testament stories, I know it's a kid's book, but Sally Lloyd-Jones' Jesus Storybook Bible would be a fabulous thing for you to read. It really, it really will open you, your eyes to the beauty of these stories. And if you were here with us last semester, right, we went through the life of David, and I tried to sort of demonstrate this and tried to give you a, a sense of this because it just breaks my heart that for most people who've been Christians for a long time, they don't understand how to make sense of the Bible at all because they don't know how to see Jesus in the Old Testament. You know, even in our own denominational hymnal, we've got silly songs like Dare to Be a Daniel. Has anybody ever sang that song like at children's Bible camp or something, that stuff's horrible. Most children's Bibles are horrible because they teach little kids that it's all about them having to be good little kids so that God will love them more. That's what Paul says is bewitchment. And that's what we teach our kids in the way we read the Old Testament. Very rarely will you find a children's Bible that says the gospel was preached to Abraham in this promise, all nations will be blessed through you, right? It's vital that we read that. Well, we're going to talk more about this next week, especially the idea about the law and the gospel and how the, the, how the, the, the gospel is a promise agreement, not a law agreement. So I hope you'll come back next week. Let me pray for us tonight.